Hello, everyone. You're in it. This is Dave Birnbaum. And I like Swan Bitcoin because it's the best way I found to automatically accumulate Bitcoin. It has the lowest fees in the industry, lower than Coinbase or Cash App, because it's focused on Bitcoin as a savings technology, not a trading instrument, not speculation, savings. So you figure out how much you want to save, and then you set it and forget it. What I did when I was starting out with Swan Bitcoin was I looked at what monthly subscription services I paid for, and I canceled a bunch of them that I didn't need, and I canceled a few of them that I probably did need, much to the chagrin of my family, and now I pay myself that amount in Bitcoin. To get started, visit swanbitcoin.com slash init and set it up in less than five minutes. Susan Oslin is who we have today. Susan is a pioneer of computer animation who was also at the forefront of web design and UX and now mixed reality technologies. She helps lead the Los Angeles chapter of Augmented World Expo and is a program manager at OpenAR Cloud. She's also a principal at a volunteer research organization called VEIL, V-E-I-L, which stands for Virtual Experience Interaction Lab. Vail calls itself an international vanguard of immersive media experts committed to revealing the secrets of creating virtual worlds that are natural, intuitive, and accessible to all. Vail is currently embarked on a project to test and catalog interaction design patterns found in XR experiences today. And the first results of that test are expected later this year with the publication of findings and resources for VR designers and developers. I've known Susan for a while now because back when the test was being designed for Vail, she asked for advice on how to incorporate haptics into the test. I wound up getting involved with the awesome team of volunteers in Vail, and now I contribute however I can. Susan's experience being on the forefront of many movements that combine creativity with new technology was especially interesting because I can relate that to my own background. So we talk about how she managed to make those career transitions along with details about OpenAR Cloud, Veil, and her vision for the future of XR. So here we go, Susan Oslin. Okay, hey Susan, how's it going? Hey Dave, <laughs> thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. We just had 45 minutes of technical problems, but we are here now and ready to have a fascinating discussion. We are. Yeah. Because so, I'm so fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, you totally are. Actually, okay, so um, background. So we've been working up this interview for a few months. We've been talking back and forth about it. Um, and we're finally doing it because it coincides with some projects that you're working on and it makes a lot of sense to do it now. But yeah, we've known you and I have known each other for, I don't know, half a year or so. We met on LinkedIn. I think what happened was I caught you stalking me and then I stalked you. Like I, ah. I, I noticed that you looked at my profile I'm like, who's that? And I looked at your profile. I'm like, wait a minute, this lady sounds pretty cool. So then I messaged you. I'm like, how can I help? And then we kind of just started working together on some stuff. Yeah. But anyway, and then we were talking about, about doing this podcast and we were preparing for it and you told me about your background and your journey and it was pretty fascinating. So that was like another, another impetus for the discussion. So let's start there. Sometimes I jump in too quickly to the project. So can you tell us about your specialty and how you, became who you are? My specialty is probably that I have a very strong mix of creative design 
skills as well as technical skills. I believe that comes from the fact that my father was a mechanical engineer and an inventor, and he always wanted me to to have a sensible career, and I actually wanted to be a dancer. But I ended up following my father's footsteps, and I went to a mechanical engineering school, um, and then it was too dry for me. So I wanted to do something more creative, and I went to architecture school. And while I was learning about architecture and drafting, I was working a job as a draftsperson, and they got a computer. And there was a guy in there doing computer-aided drafting, and I got really interested in that. And that's when I made the choice to go back to finish school in computer animation. I went to the electronic visualization lab at the University of Illinois, Chicago Circle Campus. And coincidentally, they were doing a lot of work um, at the time, I guess it was the late 80s in virtual reality. And at the time I had no interest in virtual reality. I wanted to go to Hollywood and do special effects. So it's kind of funny, like so many years later, I go back into virtual reality. All of these careers were some combination of technical and creative. And where I went to school just so happened to be a school where half of the students were engineering students and half of the students were design and art students. And I happened to be one of the design and art students. However, we did everything by code. We didn't have fancy software programs like Maya, which at the time was Alias. We really, we did everything sort of like by hand. We worked with video and a lot of, you know, like processing of signals. And one project that I did was a collaboration with the dance department where I worked with a choreographer. I had a musician who was actually somebody in my program, in the computer graphics program, do an original score for me. And I produced a interactive dance program where the dancers were sort of dancing with this video screen. And then there was visual computer visual effects. That was a lot of fun. That's the kind of things that I did when I was in college. That's awesome. You know that I did that also in college, which is weird. But anyway, not to talk about me, but it's very strange that we both did that kind of thing. There's a Mac- You did a dance collaboration? Yeah, yeah. So I went really? to school for music and music technology, and we were building like synthesizers. But one of the things we were doing was visual processing. And so we did a project where we had like a dance performance, and we had cameras all around the dancer, and we were doing real-time processing of the camera feeds cool. with a software package called Jitter, which... Probably after, but anyway, it's getting easier and easier. I'm sure it was way harder back then. Now you can kind of just like, you know, stick some stuff together and you can make some interesting sounds pretty pretty quickly. It's unimaginable right now, but my first animation, one frame couldn't be more than two two megabytes of data, and we had to record each frame one at a time and then cut the frames together. That's how we did animation. Wow. Wow. And you can't get a lot of, no, they weren't megabytes. They were, no, they couldn't have been kilobytes. I think they were kilobytes. Wow. 
it, it was super, super simple yeah. geometry. Yeah. yeah. And, and you had to do one frame at a time. I, it was, wow. There's no way that was a megabyte. It was kilobytes, two kilobytes per frame. Wow. Yeah. So you've been straddling this world of the creative and the technical, just like me. And obviously, like, it's easier now because the tools are so much more advanced. But I still think there's some pretty significant challenges for unlocking technology for creatives. A lot of creatives are still excluded from using technology to express because it's still too hard, you know? And I just wonder, like, over the course of your career, how have you seen that change? Like, is it, are we finally making progress against that? Is it always the same problem or is it, or is it getting better? Um, I think that the technology is definitely becoming more accessible, but it's interesting because with VR, I'm, I'm seeing something happen all over again, like we did with the web, right? A lot of, there's a lot of similarities in the evolution of the technology. And one thing I see is just when UX, you know, user experience design became accepted and really baked into any kind of like online platforms or software or experiences, VR and AR come along and we have to start all over again with user experience. So that's been really frustrating. But I think in general, the tools, as they become more democratized, artists are able to use the technology more easily. I think this is a bias of my own personal perception, but it seems like more artists take an interest in how the technology works than coders take an interest in in design. Mm. But that could really be my own personal bias. That's interesting, though. Yeah. But I mean, I do think that, um, you know, like, for instance, at the OpenAR Cloud, uh, very much a group of technologists, and they had the foresight to know that they needed to bring in user experience early on. Um, yeah, yeah. So there there are some exceptions. Yeah. All right, we're going to talk more about VR later, so we'll probably unpack that. But before we move past your background, you've done some really interesting work over the years for Disney, Warner Brothers, and then you were on the forefront of UX when it was first forming. So tell us more about all that. Yeah, as I was saying earlier, uh, I moved from architecture into computer animation and got really fascinated with wanting to come to, well, not necessarily wanting to come to LA, but wanting to do computer animation and visual effects. Mm -hmm. And about that same time, I met a man who was an editor and he also wanted to work in the film industry. In Chicago, there's a big industry for advertising. So anyway, the two of us got together and we made the trip from Chicago to LA. He was pursuing film editing and I was pursuing a career in effects animation. It was very early on in the industry and I had the opportunity to work at a studio called Metrolite Studios for two years. And then I went on to Disney and worked on a couple of films there. And then I had an opportunity to work um, on The Iron Giant at Warner Brothers. That's great. Great movie. But at Disney, I have a note here that you were the first person to cross from computer graphics department to the art department. So that's really interesting. Yeah, I definitely consider myself a computer graphics pioneer. And according to SIGGRAPH, 
I've been around long enough to be able to wear that title. Um, but I was a pioneer in a lot of ways. When I was working at Disney, I had the opportunity to become the very first technical director. That was the title of uh, people who did computer art back then. I, I don't know if that's changed, but we were called technical directors. And I was the first technical director, somebody from the technical department be put in with the actual artists. And for the Hercules film, I was put into the effects animation department. Hmm. And my father said that you can always tell who the pioneers are because those are the ones with the arrows in their back. <laughs> and that was certainly my experience at Disney. And that's not just because <laughs> of Hercules. It was something else. No. Yeah. It wasn't just because of Hercules. It's no secret that there's a lot of politics at Disney and making that transition was very challenging for me. And one of the reasons I left the studio system is that it was just a very harsh environment that didn't suit my personality, didn't suit me. Yeah. And so then you started a business doing web design back when that was a very new thing. I did. It was, I went on to work at Iron Giant at Warner Brothers first. Right. And then I did, uh, right. Then I started doing some freelance animation work and that's when the web was spinning up and I got some jobs doing some websites and it kind of naturally evolved. I got a couple of jobs early on that made me feel secure in working independently. Mm -hmm. And so I did that for about seven years the thing about working independently, there's a lot of things that are great about it. You know, you're working independently and you're not, you know, kind of being told what to do. And there's a lot more creative freedom, but it's also can be super lonely as a lot of people are probably finding out now yeah. <laughs> during the safer at home. So after about seven years, I just was kind of going crazy, stir crazy. And when I went back to work, I ended up taking a job as a front-end developer uh, because sometimes being a jack-of-all-trades, it's hard to get a job because you, you kind of have to pick one thing when you go get a job. Mm -hmm. So I felt like going back to my technical roots, my strongest skill set was going to be as a front-end developer. Mm -hmm. And that's when I got really interested in user experience design. Cool. And that wasn't even called that. It was just you were a designer who was paying attention to the user experience. I don't know. Was it? No, by that time it started to have a name. Yeah. Yeah. By that time it started to have a name. It, it was like 2008. I started to get curious about it. I started going to the LA meetups, yeah. which like the LA meetup had just started. And when I did my front end development work, I did a lot of standards and documentation and I always tried to find ways to create deliverables that could become my user experience portfolio mm -hmm. as a part of my front end work. And so little by little, that's what I did. And I got my first job in UX. Cool. I was a UX designer for about eight years. And although I enjoyed it, I did feel like there was, there was something missing. There was a certain part of my, I, I didn't know exactly at the time what was missing, but I, I didn't really feel satisfied doing the work anymore. When I saw the movie Hidden Figures, I was very inspired by it because 
it reminded me of my connection to technology and that I was always really good at math. And that's why my father encouraged me into an engineering field was because I had the skills for it. Coincidentally, at the same time, I started to see a lot of virtual and augmented reality. Yeah, actually, one of the things that I found out about you early in one of our conversations was you approached XR as the next thing happening after UX, kind of for you, that you were going to pursue. And you had the experience of being early in graphics, early in UX. And so you've already done twice this idea of reinventing yourself with a new technology, a new field. I don't know, the way you described to me, it sounded like you were just like, yep, this is what you do. You like do the meetups and you do this and you do that. <laughs> so you have like this systematic way of just like getting involved in a new field. And could you explain like how that works for you and how other people can replicate that approach? Absolutely, because I think that is something that I've learned to master that, reinventing yourself and going into a new career. It, it turns out, though, that all of my careers, there was a segue. So mm-hmm. I never went from nursing to astronaut, right? I mean, right. there was always a segue right. from where I'd been to where I was going. But um, yeah, when I got interested in VR and, and also in, in space, it's kind of like a natural thing. Like if, when you get interested in something, then you want to be around it. I started reading books and reading articles online and wanting to get involved in the community. And so if you're really interested something in something and you gravitate towards it and you get involved in it, you know, then eventually that's where you are. Mm-hmm. Opportunities will come out of that. A great way to learn about VR would be to go to hackathons. And that was super intimidating for someone who really didn't understand the technology. I just kind of dove in and my first hackathon, you know, I didn't do much in terms of helping with the code, but I did bring my product design Mm -hmm. background to the project and we won a prize. And I really felt like a lot of that was because of the tight story that we were telling. We had a very interesting technology, but I wanted to make sure we were doing something really interesting with it. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. So let's talk about space actually, before we do that. I don't even know what it's about, frankly. You're just like, Dave, I have to go because I have to go do my space project. <laughs> like that sounds cool, but like what's what is that? So I'm this is fresh to me. So what is this? It's an exoplanet project. So at my first hackathon, I wanted to do something space related. I reached out to the community, you know, hey, does anybody want to build a team around space for the NASA Space Apps Challenge? And I did all the research ahead of time about the exoplanets and where the data was and what part of the data would we need. So I kind of had like the project plan in place and then was able to find the developers to help build it. We built the Immersive Exoplanet Telescope for the 2018 NASA Space Apps Challenge. We won a prize for that also, but I continued on with that project. I've now turned it into a project called Searching for Sister Gaia. What does it do though? Like what's Okay, the original project was to take the exoplanet data and render the data. Mm-hmm. 
how far we were able to get for the hackathon was we were able to ingest the data, which that in and of itself is a feat. So we were able to get the data ingested in, into what's called a scriptable object in Unity, basically so you can you know, manipulate the data. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to render all of the stars that contained exoplanets for the hackathon. Then I took it the next step. You pick a star and then you travel to that star and render the exoplanets orbiting around that star. So that's where I took it. So I really thought about what is it about this that I'm excited about? You know, what's going to be interesting to somebody else? And what I realized is that I understood for the first time as I read about it, and I really grew to have an appreciation for what it took or what it takes to make life happen on Earth. Like, it's really extraordinary all of the things that had to come together at just the right timing Mm -hmm. to make life happen. And so I came up with the concept, as you travel to these distant planets, when you get to one of the exoplanets and you're experiencing the data, you also get a comparison to Earth and how, you know, there may be a lack of oxygen in the atmosphere of an exoplanet. And then we can talk about in contrast, whatever that element is or feature. Right. Uh, it's like... It's, condition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you could even, if you're doing XR, VR, you could even play with the physics engine itself, right? You could make everything feel heavier and move, you know, that kind of thing. Like, And so it becomes actually like with your body in some way, to some degree, obviously not perfectly, but you're like experiencing what it's like on this other planet with a sensory element instead of just reading about it as like a concept, you know? Well, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. Have you seen this Netflix show? What is it called? There's this show, Alien Worlds or something like that. By the way, the way I do podcasts is I bring up other stuff and I never remember what it's called. And then I just, just anyway, <laughs> it's too, super annoying for probably the people that make those things. Um, no, there's this show and it's all, it's called like Alien Worlds. So what they do, so for example, there's an exoplanet where the air is thick enough that beings could basically swim in it. So basically what they do is they take the exoplanet properties and they say, like, what Uh would be the biological consequences for evolution of that? And then they're like, okay, let's make up an animal that would live in that environment. So, like, there's these flying reptile things that never have to land because the Mm -hmm. air is thick enough that they can do everything. They can, like, spend their whole lives flying around and they look a certain way and they have a certain number of wings because that's how an efficient life form would evolve in that environment. So anyway, it's, it's definitely a very interesting idea. And I was thinking, like, wow, you know, you could use XR to do that kind of thing. I just had a conversation with somebody actually about defamiliarization and how important it is to defamiliarize yourself with just the day-to-day. Because, you know, if you spend all your time around familiar things, then you take things for granted and you don't get excited about life and that's why we go to like museums and see interesting artwork and that's why we go on vacations and we do a lot of stuff to pursue defamiliarization and you know maybe VR is a a medium for that all right and then you're also involved in open AR cloud so what is that that's really where a lot of my time and attention is going right now Hmm. so the open AR cloud is a small group of volunteers I guess our group is growing 
really committed to making sure that the spatial web is available for everyone. Because like right now what's happening is Facebook is building a spatial computing platform, you know, AR cloud, metaverse, however you want to call it. You know, Magic Leap is doing the same thing. There's a lot of other companies working on that goal. There's all these really big companies and they're all building their own version of it. Mm-hmm. And they don't play together. So what the open air cloud is doing is saying, hey, it's really important that all of it plays together. It's like, it's okay, you're building your own thing over there, but you need to be able to talk to this thing over here so that it's completely open. Right. And so that's what we're we're doing is we have a team of developers that are building some solutions for allowing these different technologies to talk together. Mm-hmm. And we're at the point now where we have some basic tools in place and we have some partners that are spinning up test beds. We have one in Bari, Italy, and we have one in Helsinki. Mm-hmm. Actually, um, you don't know about this yet because it's happened since we first talked. So we have some very early tests of open spatial computing experiences that have been developed. And so as a product person and an experienced person, it's really important for me that we build workflows with the technology that make it easy for creators, people such as myself, to build experiences and get those out into the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're finally to the Veil project. So you and I met because of Veil, because you were looking for somebody to help you think through the haptics for a test that you're doing, a user experience test of today's VR titles. So this is like the main event of the interview, Veil. So tell us about Veil. We're unveiling Veil. Yes, there's the puns never end on this team, by the way. <laughs> Veil stands for Virtual Experience Interaction Lab. And this is a collaboration between myself and Rob Dungas from the University of Sydney in Australia. We met several years back. You know, we were trying to figure out like what would be meaningful for us to do. And we came up with this idea of doing a test of design patterns in VR. Mm-hmm. And there was no resource that we knew about for this. And we decided to just go and do it on our own because, you know, why not? Mm-hmm. Our first test was a bunch of questions that we just kind of made up that we thought were the right questions. We invited a few people to join us and we started our first test with five people on the team. Yeah, so we did our first test and we realized there were a lot of things missing. And so we built a new test and we increased the size of the group and it's been about two years from when we first had the idea. We're finally at a point where we feel really solid about the test and the methodology that we've put together and we've built a team up to 32 people now. Yeah, it's been a really interesting process. Uh, Everybody on the team has learned a lot with the various team members who are uh, all over the world. I think we have 15 countries participating across six continents. You know, people that are designers, developers, 
strategists, entrepreneurs, data analysts, psychology, PhD student, educators. Yeah, it's such a cool group. And what's cool about it too is it's just volunteers. Basically, people are like, I want to get involved with this because I benefit from learning about it and networking with people in this field. That's the only benefit to being involved. So you basically are selecting for passionate people who are dedicated to it. Yeah. So, and it's been two years. Actually, that's a long time. And the project is, <laughs> it's a long, it's way more, it's a much bigger and more complicated project than you anticipated, right? Oh, very much so. Yeah. Like, why do you think that is? Is it just that VR as a medium is that much more complicated? I think there's really three reasons. One is that VR is very complicated. You know, I'll talk a little bit more about that. But really, it, it, the other thing is that everybody's doing this, you know, in their spare time. Yeah because it is volunteer and it was important for us that the data be meaningful. Our primary motivation is learning. Like we want to become experts in this area, yeah. but we wanted, we wanted it to be meaningful to the industry as well. That's been the purpose of the iterative, you know, iterating is really trying to be smart about what we're doing and making sure that we get quality data that's, right. uh, the analysis of will be meaningful. So what is the result going to be? I guess initially we were planning to do a white paper, but along the way of building out this test and having it grow to the extent that it has, um, we have a lot of other really cool deliverables coming out of it. We're going to have a catalog of all 72 titles that we are evaluating. So there'll be like a summary of our entire evaluation for each title with clips and images of the breakdown of, of the interface. So since we're taking the time to look at all of these titles, we've also included some other pieces of research, such as the Sudcliffe heuristics, questions on immersion and embodiment. The woman from Microsoft, let me gr uh, grab her name really quick, Gonzalez Franco and Peck from Microsoft, we're using pieces of their embodiment questionnaire mm. so that we can analyze for certain types of titles tended to have really good embodiment, what kind of interaction patterns were they using, you know? So we wanna ask kind of questions like, in terms of embodiment, what are the patterns that we're finding to be um, most successful? So those are the kinds of questions we're, we're looking at. And the people in the organization on the teams, they're actually running through these titles, documenting their experience, and they're filling out these questionnaires and taking video screenshots and things like that. And then you have a data team that's actually looking at all that and, and organizing it. So you're, yeah, ba you're so basically going to have, you're building like a dictionary of design patterns for XR and a snapshot of today. Yeah. You know, our intention is to do it across the landscape. So we're looking at 72 titles, but we're looking at each of those titles in quite a bit of depth. And a lot of the time in the past year has been in coming up with the framework for how do you evaluate interaction patterns in VR when there's so many different options and possibilities how do you have a standardized evaluation that you can use across all these different titles, mm -hmm. but still come out with meaningful structured data 
that you can analyze. And so coming up with that framework has been a, a lot of the time in the, in the past year. And what we did is we looked at a lot of other people's ways of categorizing interactions and we worked as a team to kind of collate that across a number of different sources. And then we've built tests and taken the test and we've tested the test and we had like 12 different sets of data. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's been a big process. Yeah. I just realizing how big a process it is. It's like spatial computing is trying to replicate reality, but then also add more because it's like virtual reality. So you have spatial computing. So you have Basically, imagine that you tried to categorize all of human experience and then you're adding <laughs> you're adding like virtual elements and things that are not even possible in reality. I mean, how I mean, you're trying to make yeah. like an ontology for that. It's just like it's going to even get harder and harder. If you try to do this test in five years, when VR is more advanced, it would get even harder. Yeah, well, it, it is really interesting because I know Microsoft also has put out a catalog of like locomotion methods mm -hmm. for VR, but they're not doing it all themselves. They're also asking people to contribute to it. And they've come up with over 100 different locomotion methods. Right. Yeah, that's more titles than we're even looking at. Yeah. So I don't know. Some of those, though, are very specific to the content and maybe not widely used. I think we're looking for patterns, right, that are more, it's a pattern because yeah. it's a common use. Right, right, right. That's a good point. Yeah. Actually, one of the things that you always like to talk about, you really love the team and the structure and you, you use this phrase of like leaders creating leaders. So tell us more about how the teams are formed and what kind of environment you're trying to create and how the structures of the team facilitate that. I did a lot of training with Landmark Education and I did a course called the Team Management Leadership Program. And I was in that program for two full years. So one of the things I've learned there is if you want to do something really big, you can't do it by yourself and you need to build a team. Another thing I learned too is that if you can build a team of people, each creating their own team, you can get even more done. And so as this project expanded, what we did in order to be able to look at more titles, we came up with the idea of if we have a team and we break it into four different pods, we can get four times as many titles done. Mm -hmm. Because realistically, if you want to go in depth as much as we are in these titles and really understanding how the different elements play together, it takes a certain amount of time. And so we decided that we didn't want to have people doing more than one title every two weeks mm -hmm. with people taking no more than a couple of hours a week of their time. All right. Well, so at this point, we always talk about the future. I'd like to put people on the spot and ask them to forecast what their vision is for the future. You know, you, you've lived through a lot of inflection points in technology and I'll let you say it, but like you are less skeptical than many people about technology. And so that's refreshing because there's a lot of negativity about it. So like, what is your vision and how do you think XR and VR is going to change uh, society? Yeah, it's a great question. And my vision for the future is really where virtual reality and augmented reality converge, which we're already seeing that. So I don't, I don't think that's big news anymore. You're already seeing it in the headsets and um, 
you know, I also envision a future where the, the internet isn't going to be a screen in front of you. Like the internet is just going to, it's the world we live in is that data and processing is going to be all around us with 5G and the AR cloud with glasses. It's not going to be a phone. Phones as a device for pulling down content, I think, is going to go away. Mm-hmm. There'll be other other ways of interacting with the data. A lot of people are very concerned about this because with data being all around us also means that data about us is being recorded at an even um, higher level than it, than it is now. Yeah. A lot of people have concerns about that. I think it's important that a lot of people have those concerns and that there's people that are focused on that, making sure that data ownership is in the right hands, meaning ourselves. Mm-hmm. But I tend to be optimistic. Humanity, you know, like us as a species, bad things happen and then we correct. Mm-hmm. All this stuff with Facebook and the data and the backlash of that is there are a whole lot of people looking at that problem and correcting in the end life begets life it's like it's the nature of life and yeah i believe that you know we're going to be okay in the end we're going to we're going to do more good than bad with technology yeah actually you were talking about the glasses and you're like it won't be a phone or a screen it'll just be glasses i remember a few years ago the objection would be like yeah, but nobody's going to want to walk around with something on their face all the time. But like now we all do that all the time. <laughs> it's on our mouth instead of our eyes. It's just like one extra thing. You just, this is, it's, the, gotta be. it's the inflection yeah. point. It's no longer yeah. a thing that's like, oh, nobody wants to wash stuff on their face. So everybody's always wearing stuff on yeah. their face. And now we just have to make yeah. it comfortable and, and useful to people. Yeah. And then it'll be glasses, but then, you know, people are already working on contact lenses, which to me is mind boggling. Yeah. I can't understand how that's possible, but more power to them for doing it because the ultimate form factor might not be glasses, but it's definitely not going to be something in your hand that you look down at. It doesn't make any sense. You're going to have to have your head up and be interacting in the world. Maybe we'll have fog machines everywhere so that you can see projections, just like everywhere fog machines. Yeah, (laughs) but like invisible fog, right? Oh, maybe, yeah. Right, like they figure out how to like, you know, ionize the air and who knows, right? Like, yeah. 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 That could be cool. Probably not in our lifetime, but yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right, where can we follow your work online? Vale is Lab V-E-I-L-A-B dot org. OpenARCloud dot org. My own website is UXXR dot design. That's my consultancy work. And then my personal UX website is just SusanOslin.com. S-U-Z-A-N-O-S-L-I-N.com. And I don't have a website for my Exoplanet project yet. I really need to do that. But um, there is some material about that on my SusanOslin.com website. All right, Susan, thanks so much. It was great talking to you. And uh, you're welcome. Yeah, and I'll see you very soon. Okay, sounds good. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. More information about this show is available at podcast.davebernbaum.com. Beats by Illy MC. Copyright 2021.